we can't feel that person's pain, but we know it's excruciating. How come we're not treating it? A broken bone is a broken bone. We know it hurts. Why are there disparities in pain treatment? So I don't think it is really truly about pain being invisible. I really think it's about how much providers are willing to trust the patient and trust what the patient says. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Joanna Kempner, the author of a really compelling book with a really compelling title called Not Tonight, Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health. Joanna is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Rutgers, where she writes, researches, and speaks about medicine, science, politics, gender, and the body. She's also currently writing a book about citizen scientists, something that my listeners know I talk about, but in this case are citizen scientists who use psychedelic medicines to treat pain. Recently, many of these citizen science projects have gained the attention of policymakers and academics, paving the way for a growing number of FDA-approved clinical trials on psychedelics, cannabis, and MDMA. Joanna received her PhD from Penn's Department of Sociology, worked as a research associate at the Center for Health and Wellbeing at Princeton University, and served as a postdoctoral fellow in the Robert Wood Johnson Scholars in Health Policy Research Program at the University of Michigan. She's a recipient of Rutgers Board of Trustees Research Fellowship for Scholarly Excellence, one of Rutgers' highest honors. Joanna, Thank you for the important work you're doing in gender, politics, and pain. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I love talking with smart women who are doing important work. Are you kidding? Well, I'm so happy to be talking <laughs> to you, another smart woman. Uh, so in your book, you discuss something that really grabbed my attention and this is the idea of the migraine personality. Now, for listeners who are suffering with migraines, you are no stranger to the pain, the vomiting, sometimes hours lying in the dark, just wishing the migraine would end. It's an incredibly common chronic problem. It is one that affects nearly 40 million Americans and largely affects women, although men do suffer too. And I know that your work comes into this area. So in your book, you talk about the migraine personality. And the reason I found this particularly so interesting is it stems off of some of the research that I've done in the area of women's health and the historical designation of hysteria. So can you talk about this migraine personality? And I, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of hysteria and how this has all evolved. 
Sure. So I think that, at least in my research, people with migraine, particularly people who are on the worst end of the spectrum with migraine, because so many people have migraine that a lot of people aren't very bothered by their migraine. For example, my husband has migraine. Maybe he has one attack a year and it hurts, but he gets over it. So there are a lot of people who live with migraine and it's not a big deal. But then for people who are really disabled with their migraine, what I hear from them in my research is that they often feel like other people see them as nuts, as stressed, as pill poppers, as people who can't cope with life. And the migraine personality was a historical designation, a historical description of this notion that emerged in the early to mid 20th century, which was the height of psychosomatic medicine. And so this idea that people with migraine are a little bit neurotic or a little bit perhaps hysterical, you can trace back right into history. And it comes from a neurologist named Harold G. Wolf. He was super important in not just headache medicine, but in medicine more generally. Very, very influential neurologist. And he had this idea. He had migraine himself. And he really believed migraine pain was real. He thought migraine came from the constriction and vasodilation of cranial vessels. But he didn't think that's what caused migraine. What he thought caused migraine was actually people's personalities. And he made the case that people who had migraine had issues dealing with the stress of their environment. Now, like I said, Harold Wolf had migraine. He also had a practice in the Upper East Side of New York. So most of his patients were wealthy and white. And so this is important to keep in mind. So originally, when he talked about the migraine personality, he was really talking actually about men. And he described migraine personalities as people who are ambitious, successful, perfectionist, and efficient. People who are really good workers, who really just needed to take a break. And he prescribed them, these men, a squash break. So every man... <laughs> Can imagine going to Wall Street, but you know, you should take a squash break every afternoon, just as he did. And we're not talking about the vegetable here. We're talking about hitting up the uh, courts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that will treat your migraine. He also thought that men with migraine may have a problem with sex. You know, we all know that my title of my book says not tonight. There's the old joke about migraine is having something to do with avoidance of sex. He thought men with migraine might have a problem with sex, but he didn't think it was with them. He thought perhaps maybe their wives had a problem giving them sex. Mm. So he thought they needed to extract more sex from their wives. Now, when the migraine personality was applied to women, it sounded a lot different. The migraine personality for female patients was still uptight, but if you think about what white middle-class women looked like in the 1940s and 1950s, they were housewives. Those women were uptight about their housework. These were women that were described as just needing their house to be just too clean and who were women who would never go to bed unless their dishes were done and their house was just so. And they also had sex problems, but for them, it was their own problem. They were frigid. So as I think so many women are accustomed to, no matter which way you cut it, it was women's fault. Yes. Some of the advice that women with a migraine personality were given were things like if they were concerned or anxious about their marriage, they were advised to just relax and accept their husbands. 
After all, doctors would point out they had to be married to an angel to put up with their illnesses. They should hold on to that man as tightly as they could. Men and women were treated very, very differently, even though they were thought to have the same kind of personality quirk. And you can see as time goes on, how that migraine personality takes hold and and becomes really something that's just associated with women. Women become the prototypical migraine patient. It's the neurotic and even hysterical woman who just freaks out about absolutely everything. The sad part that I've seen in my own medical practice is how even though we know that these gender biases are happening. Like we hear it, we see it. When you tell the story of this, it's so obvious that there's something wrong there. Yet I can't even tell you how many women have apologized for how they feel. There is some internalization that maybe they are doing something wrong or there maybe is something wrong with them or they're apologizing for being sick or missing work or having to shut things down and go into a dark room. I I don't know anybody who actually wants a migraine. And yet there's this sort of apologetic internalization that's happened. And part of it, I think, comes from something I suspect you may study as well, which is this idea of where you talked about how women feel like people aren't taking them seriously. It is on some level an invisible illness. How do you feel like women experience this not being taken seriously? And why do you think this has happened? (laughs) There are a lot of questions in there. The first thing I want to say is that we have done studies looking at stigma, migraine stigma and how it manifests itself. And we have found that people with migraine, men and women both, internalize the stigma of migraine in a really profound way. So it's not just that other people tell people with migraine that they're not good enough, that they should be doing things that they're not doing, and people with migraine just brush it off. People with migraine absorb and internalize those ideas at a very high rate. We compared some of those stigma numbers to people who have epilepsy. The reason we chose epilepsy is because epilepsy historically has been very highly stigmatized and has sort of been in a, at least in the research literature, a kind of standard for stigma because epilepsy was associated with possession, demonic possession. Yes. And so for people with episodic migraines, so people who are having fewer than 15 headache days a month, the stigma, internalized stigma level was about the same as epilepsy. For people with chronic migraines, people who are having more than 15 headache days a month, the levels of internalized stigma were way higher, way higher than epilepsy. And we were astounded by that. So there is something going on. What you're seeing in your clinical population is something that we've assessed and measured. People with migraine generally take on those stereotypes and believe them. Why Um, do you think that happens? There has not yet been a public discussion that legitimates the disability that comes with migraine. So even the notion that migraine is a disabling disease I don't think that's something that we've really had a public discussion about. So migraine is covered under the Americans with Disability Act. So if you have a migraine that requires accommodation in your workplace, you are legally able to ask your employer to change out the light bulbs if the fluorescent lights are bothering you, or you're able to make requests like that. But I don't think that occurs to many people with migraine because we don't even have a public discourse 
that allows people with migraine to think about themselves as having a disability, even though it is an extraordinarily disabling disease. All we have, our public discourse, is pharmaceutical ads that really prey on women's guilt for having migraine, right? What you see are images of women not taking care of their children because they're in pain. Pharmaceutical executives told me that's what they were doing. They told me that in focus groups, women told them that they felt guilty when they had migraine and they weren't doing things around the house. And so the pharmaceutical industry for a long time has exploited that. And continues to with so many areas of women's health. All you really have to do is turn on primetime television that is targeted toward women. And it just seems like between autoimmune disease and migraine, this level of portraying women as unable to do their sort of almost 1950s role of housewife and mother is still playing out and then they take the drug. And, you know, of course, the side effects of some of these drugs are like, you know, don't take this if you have had a history of tuberculosis and the risk could be death. But yet then you hear all that and you see this perfectly happy woman rolling around in the grass with her kids. It's very hard to not internalize that, I think, as women. And what goes unsaid is that chronic pain causes problems with memory. Those medications have side effects that last the whole day, right? Even the board of medications make you groggy all day. They make you tired all day. You're not rolling around in your grass. The medications don't make you feel great. Yeah, that's really um, true. We've been socialized to feel guilty about these things. So of course, when you talk to your patients, women with migraine feel terrible that they're not doing the things that they're supposed to do because they haven't been taught that migraine is something that is actually serious, that is actually disabling. The messages that they've been given is that migraine is easy to treat, when actually for a lot of people, it isn't that easy to treat. As part of your research, For this particular book and for your work in general, you've attended a lot of professional conferences, headache conferences. You've talked with top specialists, advocates, looked at online blogs. You've really done your homework on this. And as you said, you've done research in connecting with pharmaceutical companies and looking at the role of marketing. What are the attitudes that you have found that individuals with migraine encounter? What are some of the things that women hear from family members or colleagues about their migraines? The biggest issue for people with migraine is that they feel like they're not believed and that they feel like their experiences are belittled. They feel like they're complaining all the time when they say that they have pain. So people with migraine try and put a happy face on and try to get through the day. I think part of the problem is that public perception of migraine is that it's an everyday ache and pain that somebody should live with. Most people don't understand that if you are on the severe end of the migraine spectrum, that you can be very, very disabled with migraine. There are people with migraine who really never get out of bed. Even having a migraine once a week can really harm your ability to work. And not everybody understands that. What I heard from people with migraine is that they grow tired, they feel diminished 
when other people give them what I think is well-meaning advice. You know, people intend their advice to be helpful, but it comes off as condescending. So when others suggest that they lower their stress or get a hobby so that it takes their mind off migraine, it makes it sound like other people believe that this is something that's in their head. Or when other people say, you know what, I have some Tylenol in my bag. No, that's not going to help the situation, right? I think it's just about people really not understanding what it is, not taking it seriously, not really thinking of this as something that's a, a real genuine disease. It's like someone having a menstrual cramp once in a while, comparing their pain to someone with endometriosis. It's really apples and oranges, stress headaches and tension headaches, or the occasional headache because you skipped eating or got a little dehydrated or had a bad night's sleep. It's a completely different experience than the migraine headache and the migraine physiology. But people are kind of, I think, often weighing their own experience of the occasional headache against this and saying, well, I mean, I can cope with that. I don't have to miss work because of that. What's this about? Exactly. And then the other side of it is people also saying, well, did you drink enough water? You know, what did you do to have this migraine attack? And maybe it was triggered by dehydration, but maybe it wasn't. Probably what you did was just be genetically predisposed to having migraine. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, very often there's a kind of language of blame that goes on that makes people feel put under the microscope. And I think that's part of why you're hearing the people in your practice apologize so much. It's across the board with women's health conditions. I feel that women have been blamed. I was working on my book at one point for my adrenal thyroid revolution, and I had an editor looking at it. I had said something in the introduction about how women are being told this is all in their heads. And she edited it. She said, I think you should say women feel that they're being told it's all in their heads or think that they're being told. And I said, no, they actually are being told this. And if I actually write that they think or feel, I'm reinforcing something, which is that somebody's not believing them. And this is a really complex time we're living in, as we just saw with judicial hearings around Kavanaugh, that it is a really challenging time where women are finally saying, I'm not being heard and I'm not being believed. But this is happening for women every single day in medical offices. I I couldn't even begin to tell you how many stories I hear everywhere I go, every day on my social media of women feeling not seen, not heard, dismissed, not believed by medical practitioners. I'm sure you're hearing this in your research. Absolutely. And it's embedded directly into medical language. So one thing that some of your listeners may have been diagnosed with is medication overuse headache. Yes. And that language drives me up a wall, right? So the idea around medication overuse headache is that the medication one actually takes for migraine is the cause of the migraine. But the language of medication overuse is that the patient is overusing the medicine inherent to the term is the blame of the patient. But for me, I don't see how that could possibly be the fault of the patient. The fault is within the technology. The fault is the fault of the medicine. It's either the fault of the medicine or it's the fault of the the prescriber. Yes. Yes. So I hesitate to make it the fault of the prescriber because I don't want to create a situation where prescribers or insurers aren't allowing enough medication for people in pain. But I do 
think that if a drug worked well, it would not create a situation in which it was exacerbating the very problem it was treating. Oh, there's so much rich content here. So one of the things that I've been reading about lately as I'm working on this hormone book, which of course, as you can imagine, everything from PMS to endometriosis, women are experiencing a lot of that same treatment of dismissal and suffering with pain and invisible illness, and you should be able to cope better. But to this idea of blame, I'm finding a lot about the new iteration of the wellness movement for women in its own way, unwittingly also blames women. If you just ate well enough or you just ate clean enough or you just detoxed enough or did enough yoga or did enough meditation, that would also fix the issue. And then this other piece that I've been reading about, which is really fascinating, which is that the self-help movement in and of itself is almost a shift that allows agencies like any number of our government agencies from the EPA to the FDA to medical associations to not have to make cultural and social shifts, puts the burden on the patient to make the shift to make their life better. And I know that's a lot of stuff I just poured out, but you're absolutely right. And I'd be happy to address Yes, please. That. I'm so curious to hear what your thoughts okay. are on this. So the word we use in sociology to talk about that is neoliberal politics. Thank that's, you. <laughs> that's a big word that we use. We talk about that in my house. <laughs> okay. So I would recommend there's a new book out by Nora McKendrick, one of my colleagues, called Better Safe Than Sorry. That's about exactly this. It's really wonderful. And it's about, she studies women who are trying to keep their families safe by purchasing non-toxic BPA-free plastics, organic vegetables, in part by participating in the wellness movement. And one of the things she's really arguing is that, you know, I mean, she is one of these women too, right? But she's also saying like, these behaviors will not protect our families. They are things that we do, but they're not going to protect us because the contaminants are all over our houses. They are deeply embedded in our environments. They are all over the place. We cannot create a protective little barrier in our homes by buying eco-friendly cleaners. There are studies to demonstrate that. The only way that we can protect our families is by creating structural changes, legislative changes in the government. It's complex, right? I mean, I think it's both. I interviewed uh, Philip Landrigan not too long ago. He's the guy who literally got the lead out of American gasoline and American paint. He's a pediatric environmental scientist and MD. And this is what I say to, you know, listeners and patients is that we have to do the things that we can in our own homes. Like we've looked at studies, for example, where you take kids off of a conventionally grown fruit and vegetable diet and you put them in an organic diet and they do have a washout in a few days alone of a lot of the environmental contaminants. But you're right, we can only go so far. So there are little things we can do. But the reality is in the lack of each of us dedicating our entire day and night to being social activists, it's almost like the only thing we can do is make the little changes we can make and hope that as consumers, the consumer demand starts to shift policy 
but it's not really. We're seeing a huge schism right now between consumers wanting more healthy, clean, green, organic, and our EPA basically being decimated. So it's such a complicated time. I mean, I still encourage people to do these things, but we are having to take the responsibility that those agencies that are supposed to be protecting us aren't doing. I mean, I agree. And I do think it's nihilistic to say, well, these things are out of my control. And so I'm not going to do them. It's sort of like recycling, like I'm not going to recycle because how is this making a broader impact? Exactly. On the other hand, as people of privilege, we cannot imagine that our own individual actions are going to protect our families and our children. We have to take steps to ensure that our federal government is also putting these policies into place. I mean, for decades now, it's not just been a Republican action. Oh, this no, is, this has been going Democrats, on. Yeah. yeah. Democrats have been doing this too with deregulation and neoliberal policies is putting more and more emphasis on individuals and putting more responsibility on individuals to be taking these actions. Right. We should read the labels instead of the precautionary principle, which is if we need to be reading the labels, it shouldn't be in there. I think it's a preposterous thing to ask individuals to do. We can't do that with all of our consumer purchases. It's not a feasible solution, right? I can't. It's not enough. It's like a drop in a bucket. A drop, it's a drop in an ocean. It's also like, how am I supposed to furnish my home and make sure that everything that comes into my house doesn't have doesn't flame have. retardant or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. How am I to do that without EPA regulations on mileage and, you know, gas usage in cars? Like there isn't the pressure on companies to make sure that cars are gas efficient, like you feel efficient, like I, you know, you need the government to be enforcing these things. Otherwise it makes individual choices too hard to make. I mean, I do believe people should be, if you will, sort of their own CEO of their health. It's nice to be responsible and take care of ourselves. But this citizen scientist phenomenon, I think, is an incredibly powerful thing that has arisen. And it's not new. I mean, we've seen the popular health movement in the 1800s where women said, you know, we've got to do more for our own health and for our community. But one of the areas I didn't know that you were researching so extensively until I got your bio is pain, cannabis, psychedelics. And one of the things that happened during the time that I was in medical school was this really big emphasis to make sure that people had enough pain medication. And the idea was that if you weren't potentially predetermined as an addict, you could take an opioid you know, a kid could take an opioid for their strep throat. A kid could take an opioid for their broken arm. An adult could take an opioid for anything. And once they didn't have the pain anymore, they wouldn't need the opioid. And essentially, there are a lot of political reasons, as you know, but partly overprescribing and this idea of medicating pain has led to part of the opioid crisis we're in right now. I'm super fascinated with your work around psychedelics, cannabis, and pain. I recently just read two different articles that came to me through Medscape. One is that the life expectancy of this current generation has actually gone down 
significantly compared to the past several decades, largely attributed to the opioid crisis, and that we've had a 67% increase in sexually transmitted infections, including syphilis and gonorrhea. And that is thought to be due to the opioid crisis as well, essentially people selling sex for drugs. Where does this all come into your work right now? I'm super curious how you got tapped into psychedelics, cannabis, et cetera, and how did this maybe come off of your migraine research? The opioid crisis is, for me, fascinating because at the same time that the U.S. government has essentially regulated research on cannabis and psychedelic drugs out of existence, they were promoting medical use of opioids, which are, as we now know, incredibly dangerous. The flip side is that cannabis and psychedelic drugs are not particularly dangerous. They're certainly not as toxic as opioids by any means. There's actually never been, and this is from the, I did a cannabis monograph. Part of it's been published and part of it is in process, but there's never been a direct toxicity death from cannabis that's been reported. It's really fascinating. Any deaths related to LSD and psilocybin are contested. They're very few and they're contested because they're linked to other particular issues. Yeah. Can't remember how many thousand times a recreational dose you would have to take of a psychedelic for it to be fatal, but it's... Mm -hmm. It's very high. It's very, very high. Now, there are risks of all of these drugs, but the safety profile looks much better than most of the drugs that we take for pain. So there is an irrationality to the way that the U.S. government, the FDA, and the Drug Enforcement Agency has decided to regulate clinical research on medications. And so I find that fascinating. The way I came into this is when I was doing my research on headache disorders, I included some research into a relatively rare neurological disease called cluster headache which is a much more severe kind of pain disorder than migraine, but shares some neurological features. And actually, I think affects men more than women. It's the one form of headache that men are more likely to have. That's right, which is why I included it in my book since I was so focused on gender. And as I was doing that research, I learned about a group of people with cluster headache who were experimenting with psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, to treat their cluster headache. There are very, very few good treatments for cluster headache. Cluster headache has been virtually ignored in medical research and has received almost no federal funding for its study. People with cluster headache also, I think the average time to diagnosis for cluster headache is about six years. Cluster headache is so painful. People who have been shot say that it's more painful than a gunshot. People say it's more painful than an unanesthetized birth. And people with cluster headache are getting cluster headache attacks up to eight to 10 times a day. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine being shot by a gun eight to 10 times a day, that's what they're experiencing. And they just have very, very few therapies. So out of desperation, they were trying these mushrooms. And through an experimental protocol that they developed online, many, many people have experienced relief. They reached out to academic researchers and their protocol is now in clinical trial at Yale. So I was very fascinated by that story and decided to pursue it. That's how I got involved with the cluster headache patients and psilocybin. And it seems to mirror how many other clinical trials on psychedelics have happened too. Certainly it's very similar to the story of cannabidiol, 
when you look at how mothers of children with Dravet's syndrome, you know, intractable epilepsy yeah. were able to develop CBD oil. And now we see Epidiolex, the prescription for CBD oil is now FDA approved. That was completely driven by citizen science. Yeah, citizen science can do a lot. I think that we underestimate, you know, if there's any sort of over-repeated cliched, but still accurate quote, it may be Margaret Mead's never doubt what a small group of individuals can do. And it's true. I think we forget how much power we potentially have. One of the things that I am arguing in this work is that it's particularly important in areas of science where the government has really regulated what scientists in institutions can do. Researchers have been interested in studying psychedelics for a long time. They've been interested in studying cannabis for a long time, and they haven't been able to. But, you know, mothers working in their garages to create medications, they've been able to do it. Citizen scientists have been able to do it in their homes. So one of the pieces that you talk about is how stigma around migraines, stigma around pain even, affects research. Can you talk about that? We tend to think about stigma as something that just happens, that just affects an individual. But stigma can also be institutionalized and it can be made structural. So in this country, we have very few headache specialists. There are about 500, 520 board certified headache specialists in a country that has almost 40 million people with migraine, not to mention all the other headache disorders. It's one of the most frequent reasons to go to a doctor's office is a, is a persistent it's, headache. It's the number one reason to go see a neurologist. But what we know from studies is that neurologists really dislike seeing migraine patients in general, not always. So don't you know feel anxious about going to see your neurologist. But neurologists are not terribly fond of seeing migraine patients. One study showed that a high proportion of neurologists felt that headache patients were more emotionally draining than their other patients, had more psychiatric problems than their other patients. And a quarter of those surveyed said that they were more likely to be motivated to maintain their disability than their other patients. So there was something about the stigma around migraine that neurologists themselves absorbed. And so one of the things that headache advocates have been trying to do is been trying to convince neurologists that it is worthwhile to treat people with migraine. But we also see the stigma all the way up in federal policy because migraine is really, really underfunded compared to the burden it presents to the public. So the National Institutes of Health, which is the largest funder of biomedicine in the world, allocates about between 18 to $24 million a year to migraine research, which might sound like a lot, but is actually a tiny little bit of money relative to the amount of money that similar diseases are receiving. I been lobbying the NIH for a long time, having been lobbying legislators for a long time, believe that this is also about gender. This is about policymakers not really thinking migraine is important enough, is serious enough to fund the research, no matter what the objective data says. When you and I were writing, Joanna, we were writing back and forth about gender. And one of the things that you shared with me as well is that it's a combined gender 
race, socioeconomic issue, that this also predominantly has an impact or a large proportion, maybe not predominantly on women of color, particularly African-American women and women in that demographic also with lower socioeconomic means. Can you talk about that and also how that shapes beliefs and research agendas? One of the things we know just from the little research there is, is that if we think that women generally have trouble being believed when it comes to pain, Black women really aren't heard. They're really not believed. So we saw Serena Williams came out about her pregnancy, right? And here she is, an expert in her own body, an expert in her own condition. She has all the resources in the world. And she even she could not get the doctors to listen to her. In a life and death situation. Exactly. So for those of you who don't know, Serena Williams has a tendency toward clots. She's clotting disorder. And after she had her baby, immediately after she reported some difficulty breathing, some chest pain, all symptoms consistent with pulmonary embolus, which is actually one of the leading causes of death for women after birth in hospitals in the U.S. And she was told that she maybe just needed more pain medication after C-section or just needed to relax. And she essentially had to stamp her Amazonian foot metaphorically and say, this is really serious. And it did turn out that she had what could have been fatal pulmonary emboli. She drew some attention to the problems that Black women face in being taken seriously in clinical encounters. If white women have always been treated as fragile, and neurotic and likely to make too much of little bits of pain. Black women have been treated in a very different way. Black women have been treated as impervious to pain. Even when they complain about pain, Black women have been treated as very, very tough and able to survive all different kinds of suffering. And this, from my reading, has actually stemmed from, I'm reading Wednesday Martin's book right now, Untrue, and she has a section on the stereotypes that have actually extended down from slavery for for black women that have reinforced this idea of it doesn't really matter because they can do anything or you can do anything to these women and they can survive it so it's a really ingrained horrible belief system that keeps women suffering absolutely i mean the whole notion of race the whole notion of that african americans that africans are different than white people originates from biological theories about nervous systems. And the idea was that Black people couldn't possibly feel pain in the same way white people felt. That racial science was created to justify a system of slavery because you couldn't have Africans tending your cotton fields in the hot sun and being whipped if you believed that they felt pain the same way that white people felt. And so this was carried through so that J. Marion Sims, the famous obstetrician, was making knowledge about fistulas on unanesthetized women. You know, he was doing surgery on them. You know, when I was in medical school, we had an OB-GYN lecture and he was almost kind of deified for the discoveries he's made. And it was a little bit like listening to somebody say, let's look at all the wonderful things Mengele figured out. It was so horrifying. I know there was stories of one slave young woman who he had surgerized over 14 times each time unanesthetized. And these were gynecologic surgeries. It's funny, though, to think about how those, how do those notions, how do those ideas 
translate into the clinic today? And I think they do in a couple of different ways. One way is that Black women are really still invisible in medical research. So even though we have the federal government dictates that we have to have diversity in clinical trials, I think that a lot of clinicians, particularly in headache medicine, they actually just don't see that many Black patients because by the time you get to the, you know, only 500 headache specialists, they don't have that many Black patients. The barriers to get to that level of care are so high they don't see very many Black patients. The Black patients who have pain with a migraine, I believe, are being seen in the ER and in public health clinics. I say I believe because there's no research on this. The other thing that I think is happening with Black women in pain is that when they come into the clinic, they have to face not just the stigma of pain, but also the moral stigma that comes along with the welfare system. Yes, the welfare mother, which is another stigma, right, of what you mentioned earlier of this idea that women would actually rather have the reinforced disability than the treatment for their headaches. Exactly. And yeah. drug seeking, right? Mm -hmm. So they have stigma as well. That all accumulates. And then there's this other notion, too which comes still from this idea that Black women can handle more burdens than white women can. So if a particularly a poor Black woman comes into a clinic and she's complaining about pain in a really perverse way, there is an implicit bias that Black people already suffer so much that they can handle more pain than white people can. We have so much data on this. Black people are systematically provided with less medication and less pain medication than white people are. I saw this all the time in the hospital. And one particular young woman comes to mind. She was in her early 20s. She has cystic fibrosis and she had frequent attacks. And these attacks deprive your body of parts of oxygen. And one of the most severe types of pain humans can experience is when tissue gets deprived of oxygen. So she would have these just absolutely excruciating pain attacks. Of course, people who suffer from sickle cell anemia are also black. And so she came in and she knew exactly how much morphine she needed to treat her pain. She needed IV morphine. This was, you know, well-documented in her chart. And I remember the nurses just rolling their eyes and gossiping at the nurse's station about how she was pain-seeking and me having to say, one, inappropriate conversation, Two, she's not pain medication seeking. She's not drug seeking. She has sickle cell anemia. And the wrestle that I had to get to get this medication, but also to get her not judged. And that's just one example of this scenario playing out time and time again in the hospital. And so what I find very interesting about those situations, because we have a lot of evidence around the undertreatment of sickle cell. And also we have evidence that even for something like a broken arm, there is a great big disparity around how white people are treated and how black people are treated. And how so, women are treated and men also. Women have to wait on average significantly longer to receive treatment for pain than men do in an emergency department or in a medical clinic setting. Yes, that's true. So one of the things that I think is a terrible myth I would like to combat is this notion that these disparities have something to do with pain being invisible. Because sickle cell is not invisible. We can't feel that person's pain, but we know it's excruciating. How come we're not treating it? A broken bone is a broken bone. We know it hurts. Why are there disparities in pain treatment? So I don't think it is really truly about pain being invisible. I really think it's about how much 
providers are willing to trust the patient and trust what the patient says. I want to kind of dispel that notion that it's just about the invisibility of pain. I want to start focusing on empathy and trust. And also, I want to kind of expand this idea that we should trust women and believe women, not just about sexual assault and sexual harassment, although we should believe women there too, but that we should believe women about their pain. I can't agree with you more. I call it now hashtag medical me too. And even with endometriosis, the average time to diagnosis in the United States is something like 9.3 years. And these are women who are suffering with excruciating pain. I've had suburban, almost like the proverbial soccer mom living on narcotics who's come to see me as a patient because she's escalating her narcotics use because of underdiagnosed, undertreated endometriosis pain. And along with that stigma of African-American women can deal with more pain, this belief that somehow women's gynecologic symptoms are inherently painful and that women were made to suffer. And so we should just sort of buck up and deal with it. To me, it's also fascinating how white women's fragility and black women's uber strength both have a very similar result, which is that neither one, neither group gets treated, right? It's again, like, why, why no matter what are women blamed? Why no matter what are women not getting the treatment that they need? You know, I read another fascinating study about pain. This has just come out in the last couple of years. You may have encountered it where it was looking at women with, I can't remember what the source of the pain was, but it was some form of chronic pain and how women appeared physically in the doctor's office and how that led to how their pain was perceived by the practitioner. So for example, if a woman dressed too nicely, if she had the you know, wherewithal to put herself together in a sort of physically appealing way, then she clearly felt fine and didn't have the level of pain that she was claiming to have. Whereas if a woman was just more disheveled or just didn't have the energy to put herself together, or that's just not even her style to do that, and went to the doctor's office less put together, then she was perceived as doing that on purpose in order to get diagnosed and medication seeking so that she would be looking like she needed the pain medication. But it was like, you could not win. And that's what this study found. It's like women are having to actually manipulate based on how they perceive their doctor will perceive them, how they actually appear in the doctor's office. It's insanity. I would love to see that study. I'll send you a copy of it. Thank you. Back when I was going to headache meetings all the time, there was one physician in particular who loved to give a talk about red flags for physicians to be able to identify problem patients. And the red flags included things like patients who begin by telling their horror stories about previous physicians, patients who bring a support person into the clinic, patients who use a cane or other kind of walking device, even though their pain is really, you know, migraine. I'm listening to this thinking like, well, you know what, a lot of people in with migraine have had horror stories, right? And maybe they're sharing them with you. Perhaps people with migraines, some of them have vertigo, right? Like maybe they feel better having a walking stick or maybe they have a walking stick for some other reason. Maybe they're in pain and they want to bring somebody to help them listen to you. None of these things seem to me to be so out of the norm. 
you know, I'm not a clinician, but I thought this list sounded kind of like normal behaviors for a person who had been in pain, who had spent multiple years trying to seek adequate care. Well, you know, it used to be thought that people who had inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they were considered quote unquote difficult patients. I truly believe there's no such thing as a difficult patient. It's just you can have difficult encounters where people aren't communicating their needs or their expectations are are misfiring with each other. But these were classically considered really just pain in the butt patients. You know, people would just dread them coming into the medical offices. And we were taught these kind of things in our medical training. It's sort of like, oh, that patient is coming in. And what's been really interesting is that it's known that people who suffer from inflammatory bowel disease do have a lot more anxiety, a lot more worries. But a couple of interesting things. One of my medical classmates, he had developed ulcerative colitis when he was nine years old. And he said his biggest concern in life was where's the bathroom? You know, if a teacher or classmate stopped him in the hall and he had to go, yeah, it was pretty anxiety provoking to think that you could lose it in your pants while you're talking. So, you know, these kinds of actual experiences can certainly cause you to have anxiety. But what has come out with the advent and sort of like the excitement around the microbiome is that gut changes can affect someone's personal experience of life so much and even affect how you behave, affect your anxiety. So, you know, there are a lot of operational things happening, but I also think that when you go to doctor after doctor after doctor and you're not believed on top of the fact that you're living in chronic pain, which doesn't make any of us feel our best or necessarily even treat others our best, you have this whole kind of setup for blaming the patient, especially in a medical education system that does not teach empathy and does not teach compassion and also teaches us as doctors that we're supposed to know the answers. And so if we don't, we're typically more type A kind of people who also feel like failures. The whole like emotional projections and transference and mess of a situation is so ripe with people who are struggling with things that it's not necessarily like a broken bone. You can see it. You see somebody's in pain. Their bone is sticking out. It's just a mess of a situation. And I agree with you. We have to teach doctors to practice empathy and to remember, particularly that people in pain are really, sometimes they're just, they're even uncomfortable sitting right there in the office. You know, are we asking people if they want to lay down when they talk to us? Do they need anything? No, we never do that. I've had migraines since I was a little girl and Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of bad experiences. My current practice is really wonderful. And the thing that I most appreciated about them is my very, very first appointment, the very first nurse who saw me, I sat down and she looked at me and she said, no matter what, we won't give up on you. Oh, I love that. I said that to my patient the other day and she started crying. (laughs) It's an amazing thing to hear. I remember just relaxing. It's a small thing, but I thought it was such a powerful way to express empathy, but also uncertainty, right? To say, we don't necessarily know what we're going to do or what this path is going to look like, but we're going to do it together. It means a lot to hear those words from a provider. I'm so glad you heard that. I'm so glad. One of the things I heard a physician say to a group of cluster headache patients 
just admitting that doctors don't know everything and that a lot of what they're doing, particularly in these contested illnesses, illnesses that the medications are not great, they're okay, they can help people some of the time, is, you know, a lot of what we're doing is experimental. And we're going to work together. It really changes the paradigm fundamentally from the one that we've inherited until now in 2018 with doctor as patriarchal, dominant controller of the relationship who knows everything to a partnership model. And I think that's part of this is when you have a partnership model, you actually believe the person that you're in partnership with and you trust them and you're committed to helping them as opposed to fixing them. It's very, very different. Absolutely. And I think it takes some confidence from the provider. The provider has to be confident enough to admit that they don't know exactly what they're doing, but it makes a big difference in the healing relationship. Joanna, thank you for so much rich conversation today. I feel like we could talk endlessly about this and have a dialogue and just have dinner and and a long conversation too. Tell us what is the best way for listeners to find you, find your work, find your book? I have a website called www.joannahempner.com. And my book is available on Amazon. Just look up Not Tonight. We'll put the link below the podcast episode, everyone. Joanna, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope when you get to the next leg of your research with your next book, you'll join us again. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.